Uh, we have Love Bay Radio. We have a special guest from Canada, uh, Deputy uh, Mayor Steve Anderson. And I'm hearing a little backlash. I can hear myself repeating myself. <laughs> uh, he's written a book called Driven to Succeed. And it, hold on, let me do something right quick. Okay, here we go. So I want to read his bio first. It's D.D. Anderson is the deputy mayor for the town of Shelburne, a regional court counselor for the county of Dufferin. Steve is also a senior lawyer with the Toronto Transit Commission, director, defense construction, Canada, and a youth mentor with Operation Black Vote Canada. Steve graduated from the University of Windsor with an honors degree in criminology and earned his law degree from the University of, is it Ottawa? Ottawa. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. We pretty much already had a show before we <laughs> even got started. <laughs> but I'm loving the fact that uh, your, your book was so key about talking about your youth, talking about how you uh, came from a, a, a separated family, and then how you went through some transitions in life from, you know, how you guys moved from a different part of town, you went to school, and I, I just want to kind of talk about those things. But I want to start off. Okay, you have—is uh, it six brothers and one and one sister? Yes, correct. And you're the youngest of them all, right? Yes. And you're the only one who <laughs> was born in Canada. Is that correct? Yes, right. Yes, sir. So tell me, how did that make you feel about being the only one? who is not born in Jamaica? Because I think you were saying that you had some identity issues or did felt like you didn't fit in. Could you kind of mm -hmm. talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, and and I, I wrote that chapter um, because I think it uh, to a lot of people, um, that feeling of that uh, being the outsider, uh, wanting to fit into that, whether it's the popular group at school, uh, at church, at work, uh, and in my situation, even in my own family, and the desire uh, to want to fit in at all costs, even if it means sacrificing your own identity and your own authenticity. And so who doesn't feel uncomfortable in a new environment, especially when you're the only person, right? Um, right. You know, so you're, you're trying your best to um, find a way that uh, you could be uh, in the in crowd. And, and I was no different as a young person, even with my own family, as I talk about in the book, we all had the same last names. You would have assumed, we all had the same parents. You would have assumed, well, Steve, I mean, how, how could you not fit into your own family? 
but there was a cultural difference mm. uh, being the only one that was born in Canada. The rest of my family was born in Jamaica. And so as they, you know, the, the holidays would come as you guys are recently celebrating Thanksgiving in the States. Imagine a situation where, you know, it's Thanksgiving and your the rest of your family is talking about uh, their time in East Oakland and you were born in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have no connection to East Oakland because your life is all about Chicago. And mm-hmm. so there's a struggle to, uh, or there's a desire to want to connect, uh, to maybe share a, a similar story, to imagine in your mind what it was like in East Oakland, for example. Um, but you miss out on that because all of your experience, for example, has been in Chicago. And so that's what it was like for me. I felt like I was a tourist in my own family. Yes, yes. I was seeing that um, as I was reading, it was saying that you were even trying to, you know, because they would tell stories about, you know, in Jamaica. And so you would hear these stories. And so you had got enough courage to tell a story. And you said you ended up being the laughing uh, part of the conversation. Kind of kind of share that and how that makes you feel, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, being Canadian, I mean, I have my Canadian accent. Uh, and in Jamaica, they speak Patois. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with what I'm talking about. In essence, a, a different dialect. Uh, in essence. And uh, here I was uh, practicing for, for weeks uh, that dialect and that, and that patois so that I could connect with my family, right? In, in a way, when they're telling these stories. And uh, even though I practiced and listened to whatever I could to get that authenticity, when I finally came and had the courage to deliver it at a family dinner, uh, as you pointed out, I became the laughing stock because the authenticity was never there. I sounded like a true foreigner. And that is what happens when you're doing all you can to try to fit into a group. You you are either trying to dress a certain way, talk a certain way. But ultimately, what one realizes, and I hope what one realizes, and this is what I say in the book, this is very important, is no matter how you try you can never be somebody else. Mm-hmm. You, it's okay to learn and to understand about other people's cultures or the environment, but it's okay to be different and um, and and be authentic to yourself or true to yourself, and that you don't have to sacrifice that just to be accepted by either a person or a group. Yes, yes, and I guess that leads it to our next question: Is uh, you talked about in chapter one finding myself in a crowd. Uh, mm. Let's talk about that because uh, it's one thing to feel like an outsider out in the community or, you know, uh, uh, among your peers. But it's a different thing when you feel like an outcast in your, you know, within your own family, you know. And so kind of kind of share with me, what were you thinking about when you wrote Finding Myself in the Crowd? Yeah, I was thinking about, A, of course, my own experience. And I was thinking that there might be somebody else who is experiencing the exact same thing or have gone through the same thing and may have thought that they're alone in that experience. And to your point, one would easily accept that outside experience out in the community, friendship, work, but seldom do you hear that conversation in one's own family. And that could easily happen when all of your family is born in one place and you are born in another. And all they're talking about is and reminiscing about is that place and that place that you were not born that place that you've never gone to. And so just like any conversation when somebody's having that, that people are having and you can't identify with the conversation, there's nothing that you could contribute to the conversation because you haven't had those experiences. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I said earlier, 
I felt like I was a tourist in my own family. I felt like I was on the outside, always looking in. And I was desperate to try to get into the front door, if not the front door, the back door or to the window. But what mm -hmm. I ultimately realized, it was okay. Like I said earlier, it was okay to be myself. And that was a good thing. So so let me ask you a question. Because um, when when I was reading your book, I was thinking, I didn't know the target audience that you were writing to. And then after you and I had talked back behind stage, you told me that this was for the youth. Uh, but many other people can relate to what you're saying. But even with youth and, and going through what you went through, and when I say what you went through, so you all moved to a place called, I guess it was Jane Finch. And, and you move into from an apartment to this uh, high-rise building. And it says it had a party room, it had a sauna, had a huge swimming pool. You said you felt like, you know, you guys had hit the lottery. <laughs> but right. but it, it changed, right? Because they closed those things down, but it didn't really say why it closed. But it does like happen a lot like that in new developments, especially in, in areas that are urban. And then something may happen, whether it's gang activity or violence or something, then they start closing things down. What happened that caused them to close that down? You, you nailed it. That's exactly oh, what happened. Okay, so that happened. was what happened. Yeah, it was uh, it was the the drugs uh, and the gangs that were making its way. I, as I put in the book, the the infiltrated the building, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when I moved in there, there was, as I mentioned in the in the chapter, there was no reason for me to leave the building. I had all the amenities that mm -hmm. a young person uh, could ask for. All I needed was friends to enjoy it with, and ultimately, I did that. But one by one, as I say, they cemented over the pool, they closed the weight room, they closed the sauna. Uh, and then, then they left us with really nothing else to do other than to now explore the community. And it was really then I got a full sense of what was around the corner waiting for me. Mm. And that's that's what happens a lot of times, you know, that you know, I mean, you're in a place that is safe. You have all the amenities that you want. They shut all that down. Now you have to go into uh, the community and explore. And a lot of times those things are not positive experiences. Kind of talk to me about that experience that you had when you went exploring. Yeah. Well, when I went exploring, I, I, I got a full sense of why these things closed. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> there, there were, there were things that, uh, you know, when I moved from an area of Toronto to this place that I had never seen, I never seen, um, um, you know, drug dealers and, and, and prostitutes hanging out in the corner and, and gangbangers and stuff like that. And I talk about in the book that uh, the wrong turn, you know, when you take a wrong turn on a street somewhere, you know, the, the consequences that you get lost and you get back on track and you go about your business. And communities like the Jane Finch community and many others around the world, uh, mm -hmm. people who know what I'm talking about, a wrong turn could get you in, in, in a lot of trouble. And so mm -hmm. I, I talk about having to navigate the community with surgical precision. Mm. Uh, going outside and just saying, I'm just going to go outside randomly or go to the store and just, you know, go here and go there. Uh, that's not the way it works in a lot of these communities. You got to know where you're going. You got to mm. know what time you're going to these places because a wrong move, like I said, could get you into a lot of trouble. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so where the area that you moved prior to that, what kind of community was that? It was, and I was younger too. It was more of a, a residential uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, I would say, I wouldn't say more affluent. I would, certainly wouldn't say, well, I guess compared to uh, Jane and Finch, yes, it was more affluent uh, mm -hmm. there. So these were, you know, the open parks, kids playing all over the place. Uh, you know, I had no memory of any trouble 
or witnessing anything that would cause me to raise my eyebrow and certainly never heard anything from my parents that gave me any indication that you know this was a very problem area. We were moving to this area because we had an opportunity to get a place that was much bigger than what we were living in. And so it was an opportunity to um, to be put in a better position. Uh, and they moved to this community to put us in a better position. Uh, but I, I don't think they anticipated uh, what we subsequently found out. Right. Absolutely. It wasn't part of the plan. I mean, it, <laughs> no. it, what what you all saw was like, hey, this is milk and honey. You know, this is all good. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the bad characters just spoiled it all and messed it all up to the point. Oh, that, I, you know, I love the milk and, and honey analogy because uh, like crossing into Canaan, there were giants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't anticipate. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You know, uh, I, I want to go because this hour is going to go so fast and there's so much in this book that I enjoyed reading. And the one part that really got me when you started talking about struggling with identity, kind of, mm -hmm. kind of talk to me about that as far as, cause a lot of young people struggle with identity for, for various reasons, but you were talking about it from one stand, but then it, it, it I think it might've escalated when, when your father and your mother separated, but mm -hmm. first talk, when did you first experience, because a lot of black men experience this and and it doesn't matter you're in canada i'm in california it doesn't matter when you can be in chicago dc there's a lot of identity issues and then they, a lot of young men start taking on forms of identity that people tell them they are because they don't know who they are mm -hmm. yeah so i mean there there are multiple layers as you identify to this identity issue uh one was again as i talked about already about my family the other identity issue was being in a community and I talk about this in the book uh, that would always receive a lot of negative publicity. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if anything was on the news about the community, it was about guns, drugs, gangs, and who ended up dead in what area. And, you know, the old saying uh, at the time, and I, and I say this in, in the book, you know, the question was always posed, what good could come from Jane and Finch? What good mm -hmm. could come from Nazareth or, mm -hmm. or you know, a, a, for those who, who read the Bible and know the Bible. And so, uh, the identity in that situation is then who am I then? Mm -hmm. um, because when all you see and all you hear um, is, again, nothing good comes from this area. There's no real value in this area. And so that's the reason why we don't invest. This is the reason why we don't see. This is the reason why, um, you know, uh, we don't show that we care about the people because, again, what good could come from this area? We're wasting our time and our resources. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people who grew up in these areas start to question, well, what do I have to contribute? They start to internalize the negativity and the negative perceptions. Um, and so that could cause uh, an identity crisis as to mm -hmm. am I a person, again, that could be seen as a success or something that's important or of significance or of value? So that was another layer. And then the mm -hmm. third layer, certainly, you know, uh, for those who have gone through uh, a divorce, especially as a young child. Uh, there is, well, a, a lot that's going on uh, for mm -hmm. those who experience that. I think people will know you're dealing with your whole emotions, your um, your 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 look on relationships uh, change, um, you know, your emotions could change. They could get hardened, which is what happened with me. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so there, there are multiple layers that led to the identity issues that I was dealing with. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to rein that in after a period of time. 
Yeah, I, I was reading that in the book, and it was interesting because I was thinking it was going to get worse before it got better. But you did you you caught on to it really quick, and I, I noticed this a lot of times. And you you hit it on the nose, and you and I had talked about it. I'm saying I'm from East Oakland, and a lot of times that's what people used to say when we were growing up. You know, is anything good come out of East Oakland? But it was a lot of great things that was coming out of, and a lot of great people was doing great things. So, uh, you know, they put this stereotype on the, a, a specific type of location or environment and they talk about it to the point that we start hearing it so much that we begin to start biting and believing the lie. So then if there's nothing good and this is all we are as drug dealers or hustlers or pimps or whatever, then that's who we are. We might as well go ahead and go all out rather than looking on the other side and saying, you know what, there's more to me than what you know, the community is saying or what people are saying. But what, what really got me with you was the fact that you had, and you talked about this teacher, I guess it was Mr. Lynn. And yeah. and, and and now talk to me about Mr. Lynn, because Mr. Lynn seemed like he came in your life at a very critical time. Mm, yeah, so I, I mean, I was, we talked about the community, we talked about the separation of the parents, we talked about my identity issues. And then on top of that, uh, when I was in grade seven, I was inexplicably, uh, in my view, placed into this uh, ESL program, English for a second uh, language, um, and um, as a second language. Uh, and uh, uh, I talk about how uh, embarrassing that was. And I think a lot of people, to be honest with a lot of uh, black and brown people in, in our community were funneled into these kinds of programs uh, for no, in my view, no good reason other than the fact that uh, people didn't expect much from us. Uh, and so it was easy to funnel us into these kinds of programs. Mm -hmm. um, and I, again, once again, I became discouraged. I, I began to, to question myself, you know, how is this happening to me? It was just one thing after another, right? Uh, and here he came and he was a, a guy that didn't allow me to mope into my uh, my own pity uh, or as they would say, crying my own beer, so to speak, right? Um, and it kept motivating me every step of the way. And he's like, Steve, listen, you're here, but if you want to change your circumstances, you have to do something about it. You have to put in the work. And he kept speaking with such positivity and accountability. Uh, that's important. He, with positivity and accountability mm -hmm. that I started to believe it and started to change my mindset and then I went from being in that class and I was only there for maybe about a month, if that. Uh, and then I was transitioned out of that ESL program. And so just think about it. If it's basic, general and advanced, I was put in this very basic level, again, for no explicable reason. And by the time I was finished with him within a month's period, I went from basic right to an advanced English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a shout out to uh, educators who are pouring into the students, educators who are doing things the right way and are not looking at color, but looking at content mm. and, and developing that content uh, to allow that child to be the best that he or she could be. Mm. And it, it, it seemed like when you said that you wanted to, uh, I guess you got a pass after he had told you that you're going to this advanced class and then you went to the office or you was so excited you went to an individual to tell them that you're moving out into advance and they're saying no you're going to stay here is that correct yeah so i i i, I talk about uh racing to the office like i was usain bolt 
you know, excited about, uh, you know, the, the encouragement that I received. I was now getting out of basic uh, to advance. I was getting some form of freedom. So you could imagine the, uh, the, the feeling. And so when I got to the guidance office, um, the, the guidance teacher was there and uh, I, I approached and I said, you know, uh, you know, very excitedly, you know, Mr. Lin says uh, I should be out of this basic course and transition into uh, English. And she went and got my file and, you know, I could see her licking her finger and, and going page after page what, for what seemed like an eternity. And then she stopped and looked dead in my eye and said, Steve, uh, I hear you with what Mr. Lin has said, but in my opinion, you're a C student at best. Mm. Uh, and so if you want to get out of this class, you need more than Mr. Lin's. You need to have your one of your parents come down and sign off on this as if uh, this was some sort of bail. Like mm -hmm. this, you know, it's a great risk to the community that I needed extra bond surety or something um, mm -hmm. uh, in this uh, teacher's uh, opinion. And so luckily I was able to get my mom to come down and sign off on it. And that's when I was able to make the transition. So even when you are making the upward progress, there's always sometimes somebody there that's trying to push you back down, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Life mm -hmm. is not uh, a linear pathway to success. There are going to be challenges and obstacles and people who see you ascending and want to pull you back down. Mm -hmm. But the key is to keep focused and to keep driven. Uh, and eventually you will get there. And as, as I say in the book, some of us will have to climb the rough side of the mountain to get to the top. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, it was good that you, your mom was able to get off. But sometimes some mothers are working two, three jobs, are not able to get off. There's maybe a single mother or whatever. And so what would happen? You'd be penalized to stay there based on somebody's personal opinion. You That's know? exactly right. Uh, you know, to, and, and unfortunately, this is what we would call a lot of brothers and sisters falling into the cracks and staying in the cracks. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, because once you lose the advocacy, if there's no Mr. Lin mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I don't have the teacher to come down to say or my parent rather to come down and say, you know what, it's, it's time to take Steve out of here. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I would be. Right. Um, and, and just imagine how many other students who didn't have that advocacy that have fallen to the cracks. And as we talked about earlier, internalized the negativity and said, well, you know what? If nobody believes in me, then I might as well just go all out, as you said, and mm -hmm. just become that person that they perceive me to be. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I always tell a lot of young men uh, growing up, you know, I was told by an individual that I would never live to see 16. Mm. And, and, and I was told that just about every day. And, and like you said, internalizing that from an individual that you trust, then you would not live to see 16. The lie became a reality. And so I begin to say, well, if I'm not going to live to see 16, then I might as well do everything I can before 16. And anything mm. after 16 is a bonus. So what that does is, it, and I think you talked about it in your book, about, you know, really, you talked about adult, uh, I guess, from childhood to adulthood, you know, switching it. And we'll get to it. I'm kind of fast forward. But I have to talk about this because a lot of black and brown kids uh, do not experience the whole cycle of childhood to adolescence to adulthood. They go from childhood to adulthood, you mm -hmm. know, and we mm -hmm. miss a phase in a part of our lives that are very critical, you know, mm -hmm. 
But because we have to, you know, even, you know, and, and the mother, she might not mean it by harm, but she said, little man, you the man of the house, you know. And so she starts putting responsibilities on him. And he's like the man of the house of 10 years old, you know. Or we talked about the emotional piece where, you know, we shut those off because it's like, hey, you know, um, shut up. Stop crying. Be a man. You know, I'm a man. I'm five years old. You know, I'm supposed to cry, you know. But these emotional pieces begins to start being torn away from who we are. And we become to that hardness that you talked about. That heart, that heart begins to get hard. That anger begins the December end. And then we start doing things that, you know, is not who we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of that, uh, and that's what happens when the, the family structure breaks down. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, young boys feel like they have to step up, whether it's because the mother has said so or they've watched and feel that they have to do so. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to fill the gap. And, and and if you're already in a marginalized community, you're saying to yourself, look, I, I got to do whatever I have to do. I was just watching a documentary on on uh, Biggie Smalls just yesterday, mm-hmm. and he talked about, it, you know, growing up in a marginalized community in Brooklyn, how, look, he had to take care of his family. He had a young daughter at the time. And he had to do what he had to do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and many of us find ourselves, as you say, um, that 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 phase of childhood, adolescence, adulthood has now been condensed significantly. Mm-hmm. Where many of us now feel we have to go do what we have to do. Now you may say, well, 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 why does drugs have to be what he has to do or she has to do? Well, when you're dealing with barriers and systemic uh, barriers, systemic discrimination and racism. Uh, these kinds of things uh, often leave one with little options. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that these are excuses to uh, stay in these situations or to fall into the cracks, but it certainly makes your ascent upwards to be able to transition out of these situations a lot harder. And if you don't have the support, it's quite easy to fall into these cracks. And so, um, it, it, you know, we tend to look at the drug dealer and say, man, man you know, the person's throwing their life away, bad him, bad her but there's a whole list of reasons as to why they get there in the first place. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. If you just tuned in, uh, we are uh, interviewing uh, Deputy Mayor Steve Anderson uh, from Canada, and he's talking about his book, Driven to Succeed. And we're talking about issues that are not just based on in Canada, but really anywhere where there's people of color, uh, systemic uh, racism, uh, barriers, and all kind of other things that have hinders us from being who we are. Um, one of the things I want to talk about since we're on this subject is setbacks are not an excuse for failure. You know, <laughs> you know, we hear uh, a lot of times that that seems like a profound thing from a father or somebody who's who, you know, will not tolerate an excuse. But how did you get to that point to, to write that chapter in your book? Yeah, um, I I wanted to be better than what I was perceived um, to be. Um, I, so growing up in these kinds of areas, uh, you can't help but have a chip on your shoulder to want to prove uh, everybody wrong, right? And to show what you're capable of. And so I say that despite the repeated obstacles, there was always that burning desire to want to show somebody or show the world that I am somebody of worth and I am capable. And so, you know, you, you, you have to have a purpose. You have to have a drive, hence the, the, uh, the title of the book, Driven to Succeed. You have to have something that allows you to weather the storm 
of inevitable challenges and obstacles. Uh, because I say, if you don't have that inner purpose and that drive, you'll be like the proverbial leaf in the wind that as soon as there's resistance or that first wind blow, you see the leaves blowing all over the grass, blowing out into the road, uh, blowing all over the place because they're not rooted into anything firm, right? Mm -hmm. And so your purpose and your drive is what allows you to be able to with, 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 withstand rather the resistance. The other thing for me is um, why I didn't want to use obstacles as an excuse uh, not to succeed is when I looked at the sacrifices that my mom had made once my father had departed and uh, understanding what she had to give up to allow us to have a semblance of normalcy, the, the fortitude that she had to go, the, the, the fact that she buried her emotions, she never said anything negative about her father, even after he left and the predicament that we were in. Um, I wanted to make sure that her sacrifices were not in vain. So I, I wasn't prepared to allow any excuse or any obstacle rather mm -hmm. to get into the way of what I felt I needed to do. Mm. So, you know, let me ask you a question. So you, when your dad, because I, when I read in your book, it talked about when you came home, your mom was on the couch mm. and uh, you knew something was wrong because she wouldn't be home typically at that time. You said you went upstairs, you realized that the closet was empty for where your father was. But it didn't really go in any more deeper than that as far as like, oh, well, it did say that he set a, a time for you and your brother to meet. And then he said it wasn't going to continue to be that way. And then you never seen him anymore? How did it yeah. go? <laughs> yeah, talk about uh, falling off a cliff. Yeah, so, you know, that situation, as you, as you mentioned, uh, happened where uh, you know, dealing with the shock and awe of seeing somebody who plays a significant role in the family. We talked about this backstage, the, mm -hmm. the, the importance of the father being a gatekeeper, gatekeeper as, as mm -hmm. you said uh, previously. Um, and, and then realizing that gatekeeper, that rock uh, is now gone, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was wrapping my head around that and many other things going through my mind. Uh, and before the dust could even clear, for whatever reason, he decides to reach out to myself and my brother, who was a couple of years older than me, my brother Chester. And you see a picture in the book where both of us are wearing these number 10 jersey shirts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We went to a place called High Park in downtown Toronto. He took us there. And we went with, as I say, cautious optimism, right? Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, you're skeptical. You're wondering what's going to happen. What does this all mean at the end of the day? But we had a good time. And he dropped us off with the assurance that uh, we would be seeing each other again soon. And then the phone never rang after that. Uh, and I'm talking about, uh, I'm not talking about for a week or two. I'm talking about uh, we hadn't seen him or heard from him for over 20 plus years, wow. if not 30 years. So wow. it was as if he had just vanished. Uh, and, and in fact, he went on to start a new life and got a new wife, from what I understand, and had other children and stuff like that. So he went about his business uh, as we were left to deal with ours. And so it ends abruptly like that because that's exactly how it happened. It was mm. abrupt just like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and let me just go back to that. I mean, we didn't talk about it, but how did that make you feel at that time, having a father and then not having a father and not be, I mean, because a lot of times young men or women, whoever's dealing with this particular situation, takes fault because of that and say, well, maybe it's something that I did that was wrong, what caused my father to leave. I don't know if that made you feel that way or not, but kind of kind of walk me through that scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. 
so no, I never felt um, that I had contributed to uh, the departure. Uh, but I felt like maybe, and I think maybe some people will identify with what I'm about to say. I felt like, um, how do I put this? I'm like, I became more mature uh, or I became a man faster than uh, I needed to be. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, and what I mean by that is I, I took on the mindset, well, well, he's gone. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine. We're just going to go about our business and do what we need to do. And so in my young mind at the time, I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not going to allow this to impact me. Uh, I'm just going to bury this and we're just going to move on. And, um, and so there was an emotional part of me that was now shut down. There was walls now that were erected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and when we talk about impact, even though in my mind, I thought this was not going to impact me. There's no question how I viewed relationships, how I decided to be vulnerable, uh, how much I was going to share with myself. Uh, because I think um, in my subconscious, some of the moves that I've made as a, as a young adult and even as an adult, I think were guided by what I had seen or the trauma that I had gone through. And so as much as we think we're stepping up and being a man and we're saying this is not going to impact me, I'm, we're going to step up and we're going to do what we got to do. And, and who cares if he's gone? We're still going to move on. Um, I don't know if it's, that's entirely true. Uh, as much as we bury it, it doesn't mean that it's gone. And I think... Uh, for those who have gone through the situation, I think it's important to have somebody to talk to, mm -hmm. um, to get these thoughts and these feelings out. Um, because again, if you, for me, I buried it for years um, and it was below the surface, uh, but it, it, in some form or fashion, it would rear its ugly head. And so mm -hmm. uh, it does have an impact. You can't lose, let me just put it this way. You can't lose somebody who's significant and plays a significant role in your household and expect that it's going to have no impact on you whatsoever. Mm. Uh, mm. And I think we are just fooling ourselves if we think, I know, especially as young men, we are socialized um, not to show emotion or to seem weak. And mm -hmm. so uh, at every step of the way, we have to be tough. We're not going to cry. We're going to be that rock for everybody else, even as a young child in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know how helpful that is because what ends up happening is you're internalizing a lot of anger and frustration. Mm -hmm. And at some point it's going to come out and impact somebody. No, absolutely. And, and it does, it, it affects us, you know, a lot, you know, because, you know, other counterparts, uh, they can go and get, you know, therapy or a psychologist or somebody to kind of walk and talk with them through this process. But if you don't have the money or the, the medical or then you're kind of stuck. And you hear a lot of young men say, well, you know, my father never was in my life and it didn't really matter. You know, I, I made it, I'm, it but it, it did impact you in some way. It impacted you in other relationships. It impacted you in, in, in rejection issues or abandonment issues. Or I mean, there's all kind of stuff that you may not. And I talked to some cold cats, man, some guys supposed to be really hard, but they don't want to have these kind of conversations because it makes them vulnerable. And it exposes them to the point that they start crying and, you know, because those emotional pieces, they didn't know it was a part of them because they shut it off because they never want to visit it. They never want to talk about it. They never want to deal with it. They just continue to suppress it. So that's why I'm having this conversation. I, I didn't plan on driving on it too hard, but I just wanted to talk about it because there's a lot of young people that's out there that's, that's going through, um, you know, a place where they don't have a father. They never had a father. 
and you know uh they're trying to find this thing called manhood and identity and and because they don't know who they are they take on the form of identity that the streets tell them that they are because and these is cats man that's telling them who they are that never had a father never know anything about the definition of a man they're giving you the definition of what they think a man is supposed to be and it's all false <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? yeah yeah, it's it's a great conversation. I'm glad that you you touched it. Uh, you know, as we talk about burying these things and thinking it has no impact, uh, and especially when you become a father yourself, you know, what example do you have to be able to pass on mm. to your children so that you're not making the same mistakes? So there's no question. Uh, I don't care who you are; it impacts you in some way or the other. I don't care how tough as men we want to be, and that's why grown men, when they reflect on these things, they'll bring tears to their eyes because, to your point, they suppress it. It's interesting because I had suppressed it for so many years. And when I went to go write this book, you know, it forced me to mm. relive those moments and those things resurfaced. Mm -hmm. And it was an emotional journey, right? And so in some form or fashion, it will come back up and you will have to deal with it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to ask you one question about your daughter. Because you have a daughter, right? Yes. And her name is Asia? Asia, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just making sure I got the right one. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, how how is your parenting skills or your relationship with Asia, and how was that transition as as far as you know? I mean, you're being successful and driven to succeed, but how has that helped you uh, become a father, or even see some things about yourself that you probably didn't want to see before? Mm -hmm. So I have a a, a a son and daughter. So my son is Devante. Okay. My daughter is Asia. Um, I, I think I did, I, I, you know, when I became uh, a parent, I, I, for many of the individuals who have gone through this uh, situation, uh, I think the first thought that comes to your mind is I'm going to make sure, uh, I'm not going to be like my mother or like my father, right. Mm -hmm. And what they did, uh, to me. So there's this really overcompensation, uh, to be the best dad, or the best mother you could be because you want to be able to show that you've learned something and you're not going to be this person that you now despise or a person that you now think negatively of because of what you've gone through. And so the very first thoughts I had was just that. I'm not going to be like him. I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to abandon my own children. I'm going to be there for them. They're always going to have that relationship with me. And thank God that um, we have an excellent relationship uh, we continue to have an My daughter is in law school right now. My son oh, is wow. finishing up uh, university. Yeah, she's in her second year of law school. So we have an outstanding relationship. And, and let me just pause to say this. is um, I, And I talk about uh, their mother in the book as well and, and, and how we had two young children in university and, and the stresses of dealing with that. But we did it because we valued education. And we did it because we had a great support system around us. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and as much as we tried, the relationship didn't work. And that's okay. Sometimes relationships don't work out, but it doesn't mean that you don't take care of your responsibilities. It doesn't mean that you can't have a cordial relationship with the person that you had a relationship with, mm -hmm. right? And so even though the relationship in that sense dissolved, we continue to work together as partners, raising our children. And so even though the children understood and they would have preferred, obviously, if we were together, they didn't miss out on the care and the love that they could receive and, and needed to receive from both parents. I love that. I love that. That's that's what I'm talking about. And I, I wish that more 
of us will, will get past the emotional piece and understand that it's, it's about the children and what what can we do to work together for the benefit because the common cause is the, that we have this child and we have to raise them together whether we like each other or not you know and so i love that i i, I commend you on that even with the fact that you had some barriers and you i mean you could easily just say you know what i'm out too right? you know but uh you you stayed in there and 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 worked together that i i commend you on that appreciate that my brother yeah it's important uh uh, again, you know, it's it's we have to focus on the children um, and we could put our personal differences aside and work towards that common goal. So, yeah. So so let's let's get back to your, your book. Uh, show me your company and I will tell you who you are. That's what your mom told you, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, at which, you know, a lot of times we have a saying here that if you hang with dogs, you're going to catch some fleas, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So come, come talk to me about this. Uh, show me your company and I will tell you who you are. What what made your mom tell you that? Uh, well, for the for the obvious reasons, um, uh, you know, if, if you're rolling with bad apples, then you could expect to be a bad apple yourself. Right. Uh, and start to take shape and the characteristics of bad apple because you put a rotten fruit into a barrel of good fruit. And what ultimately happens, the other fruits start to take on the shape and the smell and the discoloration of the bad few fruits that were in that basket. And mm -hmm. so uh, what one needs to do is recognize it's time for me to get out of this basket. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing is many of us don't have that sense of urgency. We stay in that basket for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and then we get tainted and it's too late for us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's why I talk about it in chapter in that chapter, the importance of friendships and mm -hmm. and selecting the right friends, mm -hmm. and I, and mm -hmm. I, and I say how we we put a lot of emphasis on finding the right spouse and the right job and finding the right house in the community to go live in, um, but I don't know if we give as much of attention as it should to, especially when you're young, uh, not just when you're young, but especially as you're young, in choosing the right people that you surround yourself with, because as I say in the book, they could either bring you way down here mm -hmm. or bring you to new heights that even you yourself. I have not imagined, right? And that's what happened eventually for me. These friends, these new friends that I met when I started hanging with the wrong crowd, mm -hmm. uh, these new friends held me accountable. These new mm -hmm. friends were talking about becoming doctors and lawyers. And mm -hmm. I say to folks, it's not that they were not living still in this marginalized community. Some of them were living in the same building as me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They had a winner's mindset, even though they were still in a marginalized community. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and these kinds of things allowed me to restore my confidence, to look at myself the way I always looked at myself and to get me back on track and to be accountable for my actions. And so that's what I was trying to get at in, in that book that we, we really need to hone in and making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with the right people. Hey, you know, and, and that leads to the next uh, subject. When you change schools, because it seems mm -hmm. like when you change schools is when you begin to change your mentality, change your friends and all. And then you started, you know, improving on, you, you know, you even said that some of the kids are uh, the guys that you used to hang with uh, would say that you was a sellout or, you know, you, you, you didn't represent the neighborhood. Or you didn't dress like, mm -hmm. you know, the cue, you know, that that they would dress because you started wearing slacks and white shirts and and cufflinks and i mean you you were you know even i, I read, read in the book that you guys 
even went on job interviews and got the jobs because of the way you carried yourself and how well you was dressed and how you presented yourself. And that that said a lot about the company that you were associated with. Mm. The way you present yourself to the world is very important. Uh, yes, you could have freedom of expression when it comes to yourself, but uh, the reality is the way you present yourself could have pros and it could have cons. Uh, so if you want to be a person that has tattoos all over your face, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, but there may be some consequences as you try to uh, get into certain fields uh, in our community, in our society. And so I'll just give you an example. Just so, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm just talking about everybody else. Uh, uh, even now today, as I mentioned, I have a son. Uh, as we talk about presenting ourselves to the world, and, and I'll just share this. This is this just happened yesterday, actually. Mm. My son, uh, for the last year and a half, decided that he was going to grow his hair into dreadlocks, mm -hmm. right? And um, and that was his decision. Uh, you know, uh, both myself and, and and his mother was like, listen, you know what? You know, you, you want to present you a certain way. We, you, some people will look at you and have different perceptions. If you're trying to get a job in certain places, they'll look at you and maybe hold that against you, et cetera. But this is what he wanted to do. And so he did what he, he felt he needed to do. He called me yesterday and he said to me, Daddy, you're the first person I called. So I said, what's going on? He goes, uh, I decided to cut my hair uh, because I need a, a new start and I need to be professional and I need to be taken seriously and there are goals and things that I need to achieve. And this is just one step in that direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so sometimes you have to let go of certain things to be able to go ahead. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so changing schools and being in that environment was something that I needed to do to have that fresh start to be able to move in the direction that I needed to go. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that was the reason why I emphasize that in the book. So whether it's friends or old friends that are trying to keep you down, keep you to the streets, um, trying to say, yo, man, like, just stay. Why, why are you trying to chase the white man, you know, dressing? You know, you're starting to talk like these guys. Yo, man, you're selling out, man. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. you got to be able to say to those guys, yo, brethren, like, I, I just got to step out. I got to do what I need to do and prepare to lose some of these folks. Uh, mm -hmm. If that's what you need to do to get where you need to get. But that mm -hmm. takes courage, right? And that takes um, uh, a focus and a drive to say as much as, um, you know, I'm hearing these things, I'm not going to succumb to these things because I got to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. You talked about Mr. Lin, but then you didn't really say who the teacher was. You just said the 11th grade teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's, I, it's, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't remember. To be honest with you, I couldn't remember her name, and that's why I refer to her as the okay, that's that teacher. I couldn't remember her name, but uh, yeah. So you know, when I when I made that transition to this new school, and I started to take uh, this law course, and I was mm -hmm. saying um, to in the book that I, you know, prior to taking this course, I was all over the map. I wanted to be a real estate agent, basketball player, you know, really. Uh, trying to find myself as to where I would fit in. I wanted to be successful. Bus driver. Bus driver. Bus driver, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to be successful, but I didn't know the avenue per se. Um, but this one teacher in this course, after a while, I was doing well in the course, um, and she asked me to stay behind after one class, and she said, you know, Steve, I, I want to chat with you for a second. I'm thinking in my mind, okay, what did I do, or did I get myself into trouble somehow? And she said to me, you know, I, I've been observing, I've been watching you, Steve, uh, and if you continue to stay focused, um, you know, the things that I see in you that I think that one day you'd be an excellent lawyer. And mm. that 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 planting of that seed, I, I talk about in the book that at first when she mentioned it, I laughed. 
but she said it with such seriousness and conviction that before I left that classroom, I started to believe that I mm. could become that. And then that trajectory and those movements towards becoming a lawyer really started with those uh, powering words of inspiration from her. So again, a shout out to educators uh, who are doing things the right way. And it may not be an educator. It may be your grandma. It may be your grandpa. Maybe your mom or your dad or your sister. Just a shout out to people in general who are planting these seeds of inspiration and hope into young people. Mm. You know, uh, it, unfortunately, I mean, when I was growing up, you had a lot of teachers like that uh, that were committed uh, to your success and would speak into your life and come to your house. If you weren't doing right, they'd come to your house and talk mm -hmm. to your parents and, and explain to them. And I know that they're underpaid and I know that they, they don't get what they used to get or for whatever reason. I don't really know what the reason is. But you're right. We do need more educators that are going to pour into people and really actually speak into your life and tell you something that they see that you don't see in yourself. You know, because it sounds like that was the turning point that made you make the decision that you wanted to become a lawyer. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so yeah. so talk to me when 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 you went to uh, we got about. 12 minutes. So I got to fast forward. You went to college, your, bro your brother took you to college. You had to deal with uh, the reality of growing up. <laughs> you, know, you, you didn't have a meal in the, in the microwave. <laughs> you didn't have fresh clothes that was folded up and, you know, you had to, you know, split a little room with somebody that didn't look like you. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Yeah, man, this is, uh, you know, you know, growing into adulthood, as I was saying, uh, I, I think it was like a, a, a fast, uh, I think it was a fast track or fast course to uh, adulthood. I think it was mm -hmm. a chapter, but yeah, I mean. The crash I, yeah, course on adulthood. Crash course on adulthood. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, at home, you know, whether it was wrong or right, uh, you know, I didn't have to worry about uh, the, the laundry and the folding of the laundry. I didn't have to worry about. Uh, the food on the stove, you know, those things were, were taken care of. Uh, and then when I went and I was now on my own and, and my brother drove off and it was just me. So uh, the, the hardcore reality came in that, I, look, I'm responsible for myself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I got to figure this out fast. Mm -hmm. um, and I talk about at the, the early stages, as I was now making this transition, I was often on the telephone, long distance, uh, mm -hmm. calling my mom and saying, listen, you know, could I put white and colored clothes in the laundry together? Um, you know, how long do I leave the rice on the stove? Um, what mm -hmm. seasoning should I do, you know, should I get for the chicken to do it the way that you do it? And so mm -hmm. there was a lot of that that I was tapping into uh, mm -hmm. at the very beginning until I started to get comfortable with being on my own. And then I talk about, you know, being responsible and figuring out a way to be responsible for myself. And then not too long after that, I became responsible for others because as you know, uh, then I had two children while I was in university. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny that and and I I gotta commend you because you still you finished up you know you finished the race you didn't give up you know a lot of people say well I'm gonna take care of my family and and that's not saying good or bad but you like hey I'm, I'm gonna do I I started this I'm gonna complete it you know I just want to you know talk about my daughter uh, I actually have a, a 33 year old daughter but then I actually have a a 15 year old daughter and I was talking to her the other day because I told her, I said I'm not washing any more clothes for you. And I said, you're of age, you know how to wash clothes. 
you you take the clothes, you put the colors with the colors, the whites, because I'm taught I'm thinking about what you just said. I told her you're gonna go to college one day and you're gonna need to know how to do this. And so you need to start doing this now so you can understand how to do it. And you know, she got mad at me, but hey, she got she, she ran out of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> she wow, had to man. wash some clothes. And so um and so, yeah, I, I, I get that, man. So how, how did that work when you were in uh, college and you were making that transition and you, you, you were, you know, you got these kids and now you still got to, you know, succeed and, and you didn't give up. How, how, how did that, how did you navigate through that? You know, and not really understanding what it means again to be a father because you didn't really mm -hmm. have a father that was there to kind of help you through that process. Mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost, I would say uh, the mindset, uh, I, I, I still wanted to stay the course and I still wanted to finish, as you said, so that was important. Uh, but it wouldn't have been possible, even with the mindset, uh, if I didn't have a partner who shared a similar mindset. Uh, and so, and her name is Sherri Ann, as you know, in reading the book, mm -hmm. uh, and she valued education. She wanted to finish the race as well. And so as, as, as a team, mm -hmm. we uh, found ways to make it work. Uh, even though we were both new parents at the time, we hadn't had it figured out, but we made the decision to try to figure it out to, together. We were also fortunate uh, to have support from family and friends that also allowed it to be, to be possible. And some people don't, they have the desire, they have the will, but they don't have the support. And that's, that's right. why for some, they have to drop out of school and as you said, there's no judgment either way. You have to do what you have to do. Uh, we were just fortunate to have all those ducks in a row that allowed us to be able to finish. And even with the support, it was challenging. Uh, but by the grace of God, we were able to make it to the finish line, as you said. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you had a, a, a partner that was willing to work with you and, and not give up. That's I mean, we need more of that. You know, a lot of times we're not together. You know, I don't want to have nothing to do with you. I don't want you to be with anybody else. And then we start using the kids as pawns and, 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 and it's just, it's, it's not fair to them and it's not fair to us. So I'm glad that you had someone uh, that was willing to, to say, Hey, look, you know, we, we in this thing together, you know, and I, I want you to finish because your success is her success and the children's success, you know, mm -hmm. whether you're mm -hmm. together or not. So that's, that's, a, you know, <laughs> that's driven to succeed in itself. You know. Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, we were together when we were in university. So it was natural that we were working together for the common good. Uh, when our relationship ended and it was now for me to apply to law school and, and move to a completely different area to go to law school, it would mean now that she would be alone with the two kids. Mm. And, you know, talking about having that, that respect and that admiration and that partnership, even though we weren't together anymore, uh, it was a conversation that I felt we needed to have and I needed to have her support and blessing because without that, or without her deciding, look, I'm going to hold this down. I'll do what I have to do. You'll help when you have, when you, when you can, but we believe in your vision and what you're doing. And to your point, when you do finish the, the finish line, what we're betting on is that our circumstances will improve. Uh, and mm -hmm. thank God I was able to, uh, to do that with their support and the circumstances did improve. And as I mentioned before, uh, we continue to have a great relationship supporting each other in our respective endeavors. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Uh, law school, the unconventional way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Talk to me about that. Well, uh, you know, even in life when things are looking positive, uh, it doesn't mean that you are immune to continued setbacks and, and, and challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I applied to, when I was applying to law school, I was I applied to a number of Canadian schools, um, which would have been obviously more advantageous to me because uh, I obviously live in Canada. Uh, I applied to schools that were closer to where my family and friends live. It would be easier to be closer to my children, be that support system, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get into a Canadian school. I got into the University of Detroit Mercy, uh, obviously in Detroit. Uh, but I was still committed to pursuing the dream. I wasn't going to allow uh, the fact that I didn't get into a Canadian law school prevent me from crossing that finish line, as, as we talked about. Uh, when I was in Detroit, uh, it was difficult. I went from paying, you know, having my tuition taken care of with funds provided by the government to now having to find out how I was going to pay for tuition at the University of Detroit, which was over 20000 U.S., mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I got from the government was $5,000 Canadian. So mm-hmm. I was in a major gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, through a lot of prayer and fasting and support for my family, I was able to get a job on campus at the University of Detroit that allowed me to pay for my first year tuition. Mm-hmm. But even though I got that, I finished the year well academically, got involved in the school spirit and programs, got elected uh, as vice president for the first year of law school. Like Things were going well from that standpoint. But when the year ended... I knew I couldn't go back because I didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. And so I took a year off and had to work. And so I say in the book, you know, one year I'm sitting in a law class with my with my peers. And then the next summer I'm working for a collection agency calling students on their defaulted student loans. Wow. And I think it's what the hell is going on with me. Like this is so surreal. Right. Uh, you know, I'm the person just a few months ago is depending on those student loans to get to school. I'm sitting there with other students and now I'm at this job months later, calling students and saying, listen, you need to pay up on your student loans. And there were many times where I was thinking like, you know what, finally, I'm seeing the sun through the clouds. Mm. Things are starting to open up. And then bang, it seems like the clouds come back again. Mm -hmm. And many people I'm sure listening to this could identify with that. Finally, you're seeing that break, that glimmer, and then something hits you again. And so, yes, there were times where I was sitting there on the job thinking, Am I ever going to get back? Why is this happening to me? Finally, I was getting a break, and now this again. Mm. So I save up enough money. I'm now at the school is about to start, and I go on to the website, mm. to the uh, the um, the university website of Detroit, and I'm researching on the website, and I see something called a letter of permission. So I'm thinking, okay, let me just. It, it got my attention, and so in essence, very quickly, what it is. It allows you to study one year abroad at any school, whether it's in the U.S. or anywhere else for one year, but you must come back to your home school, which mm. is Detroit. Mm-hmm. So I got the permission to go from my school, being Detroit, and I contacted my best friend who was at a Canadian law school. And I said, yo, man, why don't we do with this letter of permission together at a Canadian school of our choice? Mm-hmm. So he was in agreement with it, um, and we both applied to the University of Ottawa. Mm. together and so we got in for this one year and i talk about when i was there i went from paying twenty thousand dollars us to paying five thousand dollars canadian right Mm. Uh, closer to family i'm loving the school and i felt like i was cinderella at the ball i didn't want the clock to strike 12 (laughs) right i didn't want to go back to cleaning up in the kitchen right Right. I, i wanted to stay there so i devised a plan 
to figure out how could I stay in Ottawa and not go back to Detroit Mercy, mm. here to Detroit Mercy Law School. Wow. And so I went, I made an appointment with the associate dean, and I, I said to the dean, I said, listen, uh, I love the school here. I'd love to stay here. Um, you know, what could I do in order to gain acceptance into the University of Ottawa? And he rocked back in his chair and he looked up at the roof, rubbed his hands like this, and then leaned back and said, Steve, first of all, I appreciate uh, your feedback with respect to our program, but what you're asking for has never been done in the history of our school. Uh, unfortunately, Steve, you're going to have to go back to Detroit and fulfill that contractual obligation. So I said, I left disappointed, but not deterred. Mm-hmm. Because I, I said to myself, I got to find a way to stay here at all costs. Mm-hmm. I continued to work hard, get good grades. I, I participated in a lot of programs on campus. Uh, and I had one black professor that really championed my cause. She was a constitutional professor, Joanne St. Louis. And she really took a liking to me, saw what I was about. And to make a long story short, she went to the dean at the end of the year and said, we have to keep Steve in our school. Uh, he would add value to the program. Mm. Uh, school ended. I was unsure about my fate. And then I got an email from the dean, not the associate dean, from the dean of the law school, an email that said, Steve, congratulations. You've been accepted to the University of Ottawa. And I never went back to Detroit. I graduated from the University of Ottawa Law School. And then I was able to get a job uh, working in my, uh, in my field after that. Uh, and it just goes to show you that, you know, despite what happens in your life, God has a plan for you and you just have to stay the course, be patient. Um, because even though it seems, and especially for our young people, even though it seems that everybody is on the fast track to success, everybody is ahead of you. Just take your time. You will get to where you need to be at the right time. Amen. Amen. Well, look, we're out of time, man, but I, I, I want to be able to, uh, let you tell the people how they can purchase your book. Uh, if you just joined us, this is Steve Anderson, Driven to Succeed is the name of his book. And tell the people how they can purchase your book and how they can contact you if, if case they need to contact you. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So yeah, you could go several ways. One, you could go to my website, which is www.driventosucceed.ca, www.driventosucceed.ca, or just go to Amazon. And type in Driven to Succeed, Steve Anderson, and you're able to uh, to get uh, the book there. And you could follow me on social media, whether that's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, or LinkedIn under Deputy Mayor Steve Anderson. Uh, and you'll see me there. And I'd be happy to uh, to have you as a follower. And certainly in turn, I will follow you. So uh, that's where you can find me on social media. Do it one more time. Just, just, just want to make sure they get it. So one more time. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, you could go to uh, my website at www.driventosucceed.ca or just go directly to Amazon. Uh, Amazon, most people have Amazon accounts. Uh, just go directly to Amazon, type in Driven to Succeed, Steve Anderson, my name, and you'll be able to get a copy of the book on Amazon delivered right to your house, especially if you have Amazon Prime. You probably could get it tomorrow. Um, and again, you can find me on Facebook, uh, anywhere on social media under Deputy Mayor Steve Anderson. I really appreciate this interview, man. I, I I love you know what God has done in your life. I mean, he's he's been carrying you all the way through all of the the pitfalls and the barriers and you know just the disappointments and and I mean you know a lot of young men that go through what you go through or went through you know uh, didn't come out on the other side the way you did. 
And uh, I, I just praise God for your life and, and the example that you are and, and, and being a mentor and, and writing a book for youth to, to read, to give them hope, uh, to, to be a, a role model. Uh, I, I just I'm so happy to, to hear your story and even how you work together in co-parenting and, and even the father that you are. Uh, I just I take my hat off to you, sir. I appreciate it, my brother. This was a, a, a truly a blessing. Thank you so much. Let me close in a word of prayer with you. Gracious God, I thank you for my brother. God, I thank you for his life. I pray that you continue to let him shine. I pray that uh, people would uh, understand that they, specifically young people, would understand that although uh, the course is not the one they choose, they still can succeed if they don't stop, they don't give up. And he's a, a living witness. And I'm thanking you, God, for his life. I pray that you open up doors from him for the east to west to south to north, that he would be able to uh, impact young men, women, uh, uh, just by his story, just by his life and his faith. Let him continue to be the man that he is, the father that he is. Lead him, guide him, instruct him in the way that he should go. Continue to navigate and keep him, God, because he wants to be kept. We love you, we praise you, and we honor you, and we give you all the glory for his life. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Yeah, you know, when you receive a word from the Lord, let the church say amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> all right, brother. Uh, again, it's uh, it's a pleasure. Um, 